Morning Glory and Evening Grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, the hour that many of you look forward to, the Hillsdale Dialogues, last hour of the radio week, which I do with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. Each and every week, it's available by podcast from Hugh4Hillsdale.com or directly at Hillsdale.edu. All you have to do is sign up to uh, give them your email so that they can find it and send it to you and make sure that you get it each week, that you do not have to pay them a dime. And, of course, all the other great online offerings are there. Dr. Larry Arn, always a pleasure. How are you, my friend? Very well. How are you, Hugh? I'm good. I want to begin. Uh, we're going to spend a lot of time with my one of my favorite books, Thucydides and the History of the Peloponnesian War, uh, after the break. But I want to begin because history happened in Rome over the last 10 days. And I'm curious what the reaction was among your students at Hillsdale and what your thoughts on it were. Uh, well, it's a big thing at Hillsdale. It's a, you know, it's a very heavily Christian college and uh, always founded with Christian purposes. And we have a very unusual thing. We have a very large minority who are Catholics, you know, I don't know, maybe 35 or 40 percent, maybe 30, and then lots of Protestants, and we seem to get on. I'm proud about that. And so it's sort of like the way you've conducted yourself on your show. Uh, a lot of people are talking about it, and not all of them are Catholic, and uh, this is a thrilling pope, and uh, so he attracts a lot of attention. Now, I have to read to you from his inaugural mass on Tuesday morning. Three paragraphs, because in many respects, it's addressed to you and to everyone else in positions of leadership. And I'm curious your reaction. The vocation of being a protector, the Pope said, however, is not just something involving us Christians alone. It also has a prior dimension, which is simply human, involving everyone. It means protecting all creation, the beauty of the created world, as the book of Genesis tells us, and as St. Francis of Assisi showed us. It means respecting each of God's creatures and respecting the environment we live. It means protecting people, showing loving concern for each and every person, especially children, the elderly, those in need, who are often the last we think about. It means caring for one another in our families, husbands and wives, first protect one another, and then as parents, they care for their children, and children themselves in time protect their parents. It means building sincere friendships in which we protect one another in trust, respect, and goodness. In the end, everything has been entrusted to our protection, and all of us are responsible for it. Be protectors of God's gifts. Whenever human beings fail to live up to this responsibility, whenever we fail to care for creation and for our brothers and sisters, the way is open to destruction and hearts are hardened. Tragically, in every period of history, there are Herods who plot death, wreak havoc, and mar the countenance of men and women. Please, I would ask, he continues, all those who have positions of responsibility in economic, political, and social life, and all men and women of goodwill, let us be protectors of creation, protectors of God's plan inscribed in nature, protectors of one another and of the environment. Let us not allow omens of destruction and death to accompany the advance of the world, but to be protectors. We also have to keep watch over ourselves, let us not forget that hatred, envy, pride defile our lives. Being protectors then also means keeping watch over our emotions, over our hearts, because the, they are the seed of good and evil intentions, intentions that build up and tear down. We must not be afraid of goodness or even tenderness. Larry Art. Uh, well, that's lovely. And, of course, that's a, a statement of, of central tenets of Christianity, which Protestants understand to be a command to every human being, and Catholics understand to be a command to every human being operating as a church under a leadership of a pope. 
so the, the, the difference is significant, but not, in my opinion, fundamental. Um, so he, he I, I know this week you've been talking, you've been writing nicely, by the way, good for you, about the meaning of all this, including for public life in America and other countries. And on the surface, that sounds like the platform of the Democratic Party. And so it could have partisan uh, meaning, depending on how it's read. And the reason for that, I'll go on to say, is because uh, we have lost the language in America. It's not a Republican or a Democratic thing. It's a, it's a, it's a thing. We've lost the language by which we understand the regime of individual rights to be a public good. And the way to care for each and every is through a constitutional system in which each and every is also a governor, and each and every has a dom- domain of his own in which to operate. And and we, we're not very good at that anymore. I looked up, because I've been watching all this, because I'm partly reading you about it. I looked up a great uh, quote from Abraham Lincoln from January of 1861, you know, just before he's inaugurated. He's inaugurated. He says that uh, he says uh, that the Constitution and the Union are things that come together to give liberty to all, to give hope to all, and by consequence, enterprise and industry to all. The expression of that principle in the Declaration was most happy and fortunate. Without this, as well as with it, we could have declared our independence of Great Britain, but without it, we could not, I think, have secured our free government and consequent prosperity. No oppressed people will fight and endure, as our fathers did, without the promise of something better than a mere change of masters. So, what America was understood to be for so long was the first thing to give everyone a chance, an opportunity, and a hope. Everyone equally. And I think I, I couldn't... I've I, I read that... Uh, that what you what you just read to me, I've read it uh, from his his statement at his sermon, I guess it was at his his uh, inauguration installation. Yeah. But did you say Herod's H E R O D S? Yes. And see, that's a that's very powerful. Yes, it is. It depends on how one reads that. It, it you know is it you know it, Herod was an unjust ruler who was complicit in the in the killing of Jesus and was the uh, executor of John the Baptist. So, it, 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 the doctrine is that one must not set up any human authority with a power like that of God or an angel, and that if you don't do that, then you get a chance for a free and responsible people who will take their freedom seriously. And that's that's why I found this sermon so interesting and look forward to talking to you about it, because if the the left is going to hear it and they're going to say he's for you know global warming you know carbon taxes and things, and then I read it and I see in it not only the warning about tyranny but also protectors of God plan inscribed in nature. Now, of course, that is traditional Catholic teaching about natural law, and you've got Robbie George running all over the country trying to tell people that, and Archbishop Chaput trying to tell people that that natural law is our friend. But, you know, we've lost the capacity to actually hear what people are saying or read closely what they write. And nature has a way of reminding us, you know, when we lose the capacity to understand it, because it's a very assertive thing. 
Barack Obama in his Audacity of Hope book says implicit in the Constitution structure in the very idea of ordered liberty is that there is no absolute truth. Wow. That's a quote from Audacity of Hope. And it's hard to enroll the new pope or any any pope in the legions who agree with that sentiment. So what what the pope is saying is is if we if we have the language to remember it and as I say, we're going to be reminded of the language by one way, one way or another, if the language was ever true, because if it's, it was ever true, it's eternally true. And the, the claim of that language is that every human being who exercises responsibility, authority, has a responsibility to go with it. And that is the heart of what this pope is saying. Yeah. Now, now, I want to conclude this segment before we turn to the Peloponnesian War by asking, on campus, I can't recall, and I've been there four or five times, does Hillsdale have a chapel? We do, and it's it's uh, not it's not very big. Uh, it's tiny, in fact. And uh, it, it, the reason it doesn't have a big one is because in the 1890s we built down the street the College Baptist Church, and it's still there, and it's a beautiful church. It's not big enough to hold us anymore, and it, it holds about 650, which is what the college used to be. Now it's about 1,450 plus the faculty and staff, so it's, you know, it's 18, 1900. So it's, so we can't, we don't have a place to meet, and we're ambitious to build another one. And what we do is we, we make do with the College Baptist Church, with our tiny chapel right on the campus, with the gymnasium. We have just finished a beautiful big addition to the gymnasium, which is appointed so that it's a great place to have commit, a commencement and has a dignity about it. But we want to build a, a, a chapel that will hold the bunch of us. And well, somebody listening, you know, you ought to be Sidney Poitier and Lilies of the Field and, and build Larry Arna Chapel. Uh, yeah. That a fine movie. So. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I, somebody out there ought to build you a chapel like the German nun. It's a, by the way, it's a wonderful movie. If none of you have ever seen Lilies of the of the Valley, uh, Lilies of the Field with Sidney Poitier, uh, you should. I'll be back with Dr. Larry Arn to go from Sydney and the Pope to Thucydides and the Peloponnese. Go nowhere. It's the Hour of Hillsdale, the Hillsdale Dialogues. Hugh for Hillsdale.com on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu, or Hugh for Hillsdale.com. You can find all of our Hillsdale Dialogues, which absorb the last hour of our radio week, uh, growing with a cult-like ferocity, and I'm a little afraid of it, actually, the kind of emails I get about, finally, something I can listen to on the radio. I said, what do you think I've been doing all these years? Uh, Dr. Arn, I am, I, I, I've got to give you a little background. When I first arrived in Cambridge at Harvard in 1974, in my very first semester, I read two books in four courses that I thought were amazing. One was The Confessions by Augustine. I can't even remember the professor who taught that. It was in the humanities. And then in, in Gov 40, Stanley Hoffman, taught the history of the Peloponnesian War, except he taught it like Stanley Hoffman would teach it, uh, with an excerpt here, an excerpt there, and I never quite figured it out. And it's always been a wonder to me, and I'm intimidated by it because I can't pronounce anything in it, and I'm, I'm terrible at that. But I, I, I'm looking to guide uh, today. We're going to open up the first chapter, actually, only the first uh, 50 paragraphs or so, and, and ask you, uh, you know, give me a sense of how long you spend in the history of the Peloponnesian War with the Hillsdale students and how you go about doing it, because it's such a magnificent book. Well, it, it's it's uh, one of the great 
you know, one of the greatest works of history and probably the second work of history. And you, Hugh, are guilty of giving too little shrift to the first one, Herodotus, <laughs> but you have a fondness, I can tell, for Thucydides, so we'll figure him out. And it, 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 the, the, the history of the Peloponnesian War, you may, you may sort of locate where it is. Yes. What happens in the, in, first, the, the book opens with Thucydides giving a history of Greece. And it goes back to the to the uh, Mycenaean times, which are ancient times, and the record of them is poor. And Homer is a big part of the record. Thucydides seems to be somewhat critical of Homer, uh, but he sort of develops the history of the Greek people and uh, of these great people, the Greeks, who are the greatest people on earth at the time of of Thucydides. And he explains in the book why that is so. And so it begins with a long history of, and if you want, we'll go through it, of what happened that led to the current day. And the immediate proximate history is the part that's covered in Herodotus. And he spends some time on that. Well, let's, let's pause for a second. Why does he even bother? Because he, he is a bit disdainful of the poet's license in Homer. And he says a lot of this you can't tell, but he spends quite a lot of time saying, hey, pirates are pirates. And and the the Greeks had to be pirates, and there was no particular program attached to that. Why does he bother doing this? Well, he 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 thinks that he, first of all, he thinks it's a it's formative of the Greeks. These stories, which probably refer to events, almost certainly do, and and that they come to be what they are because of this story. For example, Agamemnon, a great king. Is the father father of the Peloponnese, which is the place in Greece where the Spartans are. And but can I stick in something about geography? You bet. Because it's it's a great idea to know where we are. Greece is in the eastern Mediterranean, and it sticks down a peninsula into the Mediterranean. It's of vast strategic importance today, as it was in the Second World War. And down at the bottom of Greece, there are two very significant places. Attica, and that's where, and they're and they're both over on the eastern side, and Attica, and that's where Athens is, and Athens is naval power, uh, energetic, imperial, traveling the world. I mean, not the whole world, but the world as they knew it then. Also, the father of the, and the mother of the poets of Socrates, of the great sculptors of the arts. And south, and a bit west of them, is a peninsula sticking down off this isthmus, or this protrusion down into the Mediterranean, and that's the Peloponnese, or the Peloponnese, this is the Peloponnesian War. And at the heart of this Peloponnese, a land power, Sparta, the greatest infantry nation in human history, and the Spartans are insular, and and solid and uh, hierarchical and a slave society, all of the adults who are free citizens, a minority, spend from seven years old until they're 60, some, entirely in the profession of arms. And all of the rest of, all of the work is done by slaves who work for these guys who are the best warriors on earth and hold down a slave population at home while they defend the city. So great are they that we talked about. Now, on the left-hand side is the Ionian Sea leading up to the Adriatic, 
and on beyond that is Sicily and Italy, where there are Greek colonies. And, and in the main city of Sicily, Syracuse, much happens of vital importance in this war. So on to the left is what would become Rome, which, which is now much Greek and settled by Greeks. On the right is the Aegean Sea, and that is where Persia starts, because the Persian War starts over a lot of things, but one of them is colonies that the Greeks have uh, in Turkey and south of there and on in uh, the land toward Persia. And so th this war is sort of encompasses those three realms, Greece in the middle, uh, uh, Sicily and, and Italy to the left, and Turkey and Persia, what we call Turkey today, Persia to the right. And last so week... war becomes... And, and at the moment when the war starts, the Greeks have defeated the Persians. Yep. And the Persians are a great and huge empire, much outnumbering the Greeks. And so the Greeks are at the peak of their power and beginning the great philosophic and artistic flourishing that is one of the most famous things to happen in all of history and the, one of the two strains that make Western civilization. And the two great powers within it, Athens and Sparta, who, who have led the Greeks to their tremendous triumph over the Persians, fall to quarreling. They can't get on. And effectively, this 27-year war, which encompasses those three regions that I just described, East, Central, and West, uh, this 27-year war destroys the preeminence of the Greeks in, in, uh, in, West, in, in, in the world, and it is replaced by others because they beat themselves to death. We have 30 seconds to the break. When we talked about Herodotus, he was describing when Sparta and Athens were allies against Persia. What period of time elapses between their alliance to defeat the Persians and the quarreling that becomes the destructive war? 30, 40 years. Yeah. And, and so from a period, the blink of an eye, actually, in history. Yeah, it's a generation. Right, and they and the big tale when they negotiate with each other, you, you'll see that the heart of Thucydides is the speeches that are in it. But where, but I'll describe that in a minute. A lot of the speeches in the beginning are about what part we, relative parts we, Sparta or we Athens, played in the great victory over the Persians. We'll tell you why that matters when I return with Dr. Larry Arn. The Peloponnesian War is our subject in this Hillsdale dialogue, as it will be for a few weeks to go nowhere. 34 minutes after the hour, America, to here with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, in our weekly Hillsdale Dialogue. We are opening up a wonderful book, uh, The Peloponnesian, The History of the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides. Uh, Dr. Arn is laying basic groundwork from, which can be drawn from the first 50 paragraphs of the book. But before we even get into those first 50 paragraphs, you're setting up the, the, the transition. Thucydides himself is living in the golden age, but, but he wasn't alive, I don't think, for the conclusion of the war with Persia, was he? Yes, he was. Oh, he made the end of it? Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, no, for the coup, no, he was not. Okay, and so he is, but he is alive for this war. Yeah, and that's right, he's a general in this war. He's an Athenian general in this war, and he loses a battle in this war, and when he describes that battle, he changes the person 
in which he tells the story. And to explain what that means, um, uh, here's the first person. I, Larry Arn, am going to go and get on an airplane today, da-da-da-da-da. Uh, the second person is... Um, let me get the person's right. The third, he, he reverts to the third person. The third person is, and then he went here, and then he went there, right? Telling yes. about somebody else. Yep. So it, 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 he, he is a figure in this war, and because he loses this battle, especially in Athens, one of the consequences of defeat is exile or execution. Better to win. <laughs> the Athenian democracy is changeable. And, uh, that's one of their one of their advantages and disadvantages is that they're a more popular system of rule and very flexible, and their disadvantages too flexible. So he is exiled for twenty years, and he thinks they're in this long war. He's exiled for twenty years, and he thinks a lot and he writes a lot, and and he is a he doesn't describe himself very much in the thing, and we don't know a lot about him. But we know that he was a highly educated and reflective man, and we know that he sets out with the explicit ambition to write a story that will last for the ages. And he makes claims about his abilities, and he sets himself above Homer and, 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 and certainly wants to be believed. I have written my work not as an essay, which is to win the applause of the moment, but as a possession for all time in paragraph 22. He's not right. a modest man. And he does he does that because he thinks that he, he does think that he he wants to dismiss in a way, he wants to build upon and capitalize upon the story of Homer and the story of Herodotus, that is the great Trojan War, which also happens over there, as I said, to the east toward Persia, that's where Troy was. And and he wants to build upon the Herodotus story because it's very important to this story, but he's telling a different story, and it's different because the the nature of Thais is different because his own abilities are different. The Athenians, we will discover in the book, are very given to praising themselves, uh, and the Spartans much less so. Uh, but he 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 does say good words about himself and his ability. In addition, the situation is different, because these are the greatest people on earth now, and although very different when you compare them to the Persians, they are the same, and they are a talking and a rational people, and they and, and, and also a pious people, especially the Spartans, but they, they have a story to tell, and the story is well recorded, the facts are known, and he can dwell upon those. And he proceeds by a different method than Herodotus. And I, I myself am not ready to say that Thucydides is greater than Herodotus, and that's a little bit heretical. But you wouldn't call him less great. And he proceeds by a different method. Herodotus is a big traveler, and he goes and describes what he sees. It is, I, I called it sort of like an early multicultural uh, study, except with a standard of culture against which to to describe all culture, something we very much need today. Herodotus, I'm sorry, Thucydides constructs speeches. There are, according to Victor Hansen, in the in the introduction to the best uh, edition of the Peloponnesian War, it's called the Landmark Thucydides, edited by Robert Strassler, a uh, businessman who did a great thing by putting it together, lots of maps and headnotes and huh. chronology, and very easy to follow. It's a, it's a tremendous book. You ought to buy it. Tell, uh, the title again is? 
the landmark Thucydides. All right. And Victor Hansen, the great man, writes the introduction to it, and he remarks that there are 141 speeches in the in the uh, in the book, and those are mostly statesman speeches, people addressing assemblies of allies and enemies and friends, and telling them, and that together they stand often, uh, and they analyze the situation. And stand there, because we must take a break. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn on the speeches of the Peloponnesian War. 44 minutes after the Hour American Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, beginning our weekly conversations about the history of the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides. And uh, Dr. Arn has recommended the landmark Thucydides by, uh, what's his name again, Dr. Arn? Robert Strassler, S-T-R-A-S-S-L-E-R. I'll have to go and get that this week to prepare for next as I'm working off uh, the Leitner translation, which is fairly common everywhere, and I'll, I'll... I'll retool. But you, you were talking about speeches at the break, and in the very first chapter, we have the ambassadors from Corinth and, and Corsiria doing that, the first two big speeches. And, and if you're not ready to read them the right way, I think they will intimidate. But in fact, 141 of these, what a course could be constructed from those speeches. Yeah, and that's the, they're the heart of the book. Uh, of course, Thucydides was not there for all but a few of these speeches, and there are not written records of them except in him. And he explains that that they're saying what they would have said given what they are. And that means that these speeches are an insight into the things that move these people. For all we know, they may not have been as explicit as these speeches are. Uh, there's a very dramatic one right at the beginning, the one you just referred to. And, you know, the, the Greeks are big talkers. And so they, uh, and you remember when we spoke of Herodotus, I, I recounted or I read to you a speech that Mardonius, the commanding general of the Persians, makes to Xerxes, and it's so fawning and odd to the Western ear. And of course, if you have to fawn over the ultimate decision maker, it's, it impedes reasoning. The Greeks are not like that at all. The Greeks walk in and state their case and proclaim their virtues and and lay out and parse out the situation. It's in, in you know my duty is this and my right is this and I've got this power and you can't stand up against it. And then the reply, uh, okay, but we're not going to give up uh, just because you say that. We have a great free city ourselves, and we're in the right here. And if you do this to us, then we're going to go do this thing to you. And, and they reason like that, and they're about to kill each other. But first they talk, and they talk candidly. And this gives Thucydides, and for all we know, this is what they did, but it strikes us as very odd. But, you know, it, 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 to, to denounce an enemy and state your own claims and appeal to his good nature and self-interest, very common in these speeches, and they permit Thucydides to draw a picture of what, the, what is in the souls of these people, what makes them act the way they do. Next week, we're going to have to come and, and dwell on these two ambassadors uh, contending for the alliance with Athens. But before we run out of time this week, I have two specific questions early on. The first is the city sort of condemns the Athenians as the first to lay aside their weapons and to adopt an easier and more luxurious mode of life. 
Indeed, it is only lately that their rich old men let off the luxury of wearing undergarments of linen. He contrasts that with the Spartans, who, example of contend naked, publicly stripping and anointing themselves with their gymnastic exercises. And then he goes on to talk about Agamemnon. I mean, he just goes way back and says Agamemnon couldn't actually get the, the, the Greeks to follow him out of love. They did so out of fear. So even at the very beginning, is he... Is he telegraphing his punch that the Athenians lost because they were soft? Well, you know, they, they fought mighty well and for a long time for soft people, but yes. I got a yes out of Larry Arn. I'm happy. <laughs> it was a, uh, it was, uh, you know, to, to be soft compared to the Spartans is not necessarily to be very soft. And, uh, you know, the greatness of the Spartans is just awesome. And they do eventually win the war. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. But but it's a tragedy, too. We're we're studying here. Let me me make this point. One of the reasons that Thucydides thinks that this is the greatest story to be told, and he's telling it in the greatest possible way, is because of the greatness of these peoples. They are the greatest people in the history of man. And look what they gave rise to. And we're talking about them today on the radio. Yeah. And, 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 and his argument is, when you see them under stress against each other, especially in these speeches, they are telling you what they are, what makes them what they are. And the Athenians do not come across as soft. They come across as arrogant. And what they think is that they begin a war in an unbeatable condition. That's what they think. And the Spartans do not think that. And I can tell you, read Winston Churchill, you will never find him talking the way Pericles talks, or the Athenians customarily talk about the fact that they cannot be beaten. I have to ask you this. It's the 10th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq. Is there was there a little of Athens in America at the time? Well, I think the mistake. George Bush is a humble man, and uh, but but uh, both George Bushes who invaded Iraq. But I think they didn't know enough history, and I think they let themselves get carried away. I had a conversation with a high functionary in the Bush administration in the White House one day, and he said, "Do you believe in freedom for Iraq?" And I said, "Yes," and he said. But I said, hard to do. (laughs) He said, but they want it, don't they? I said, Lord, do you think that's dispositive? (laughs) First of all, it's not clear that they want it in the same way we do, but have you read the beginning of the Federalist Papers? It's all about the conditions that make an unusual opportunity for freedom in America. I think we thought that it was just going to be automatic. And the Athenians, did they think it was going to be automatic? Oh, did they not? (laughs) (laughs) When we go on and on. Oh, we could. I don't know how many weeks we will do this, but uh, you're right. I I skipped over Herodotus because I like this part. (laughs) 
<laughs> but we will have fun. Dr. Larry Ard, thank you. The history of the Peloponnesian War, the landmark Thucydides is the one you want to go to Amazon.com and pick up, as I will do right now, if you want to read along with us. And all of our dialogues are available at Hillsdale.edu or Hugh4Hillsdale.com. And remember our first segment, someone needs to build a chapel at Hillsdale. Someone needs to build a chapel, as Sidney Poitier did, uh, for the, the nuns in the valley in Lilies of the Field. I'll be back, America, with Tarzana Joe. Go nowhere. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. <laughs> 